Hi, my name is Elena Blankenship, and I will be reading 1 Peter 2, 1 through 6. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we open your word, Lord, we ask that you open our ears to hear. We ask that you open our eyes to see, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to embrace the timeless truth that you have for us today. May you be glorified, O Lord, and may your church be edified. In your holy name we pray, amen. Well, I will say there is a tie-in to Psalm 34. Um, in fact, there are so many that I don't think I can really cover them any more than to preach this sermon to you. But I would encourage you to go back um, this week and read Psalm 34, maybe again and again and again, in the light of a topic that Pastor KJ introduced to us last week, this idea of an ambassador. But what are the distinguishing marks of a foreign ambassador. Again, Pastor KJ introduced this last week, but I'm going to kind of continue riding his coattail through this week, mainly because I believe the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of Peter's pen, um, just continues the thought from chapter 1, verse 25, right into chapter 2, verse 1. And so that is where we're going to be today. And I intend to expand on this idea of ambassadors. So I ask again, what distinguishes an ambassador of a foreign country? Well, for starters, he's not from that country or she is not from that country to which he has been sent, which means that there's a, at least a possibility he or she may look very different from the natives of that country. He may speak with an accent if the countries do not share the same language. But he also must be well-informed about what is happening in that country that he is in. He should do everything in his power to promote friendly relations between his own country and the country in which he has been posted. But above all, his task is to seek the will of his country's ruler or leaders and the welfare of his home country. As Pastor KJ pointed out last week, we who are the elect exiles are also Christ's ambassadors. And as his ambassadors, we are to have distinguishing marks as we seek to perform the will of Christ our King. So today we are going to look at five, yes, five distinguishing marks of Christ's ambassadors. 
Um, you could also think about these as more dots from last week, if you remember, of connecting more dots of the picture that it looks like to be an elect exile, an ambassador of Christ. And the first of these distinguishing marks we see in verse 1, it is what we leave behind. If you are taking notes, you will be very appreciative of my very Baptist approach to this text and this sermon. There's going to be a lot of alliteration, so you're welcome if that's you. Um, Verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 2 says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, I would imagine that for, all, for most, if not all of us, that we would immediately agree that these things that are listed in verse 1 have no place in the life of a Christian. We would say these, these shouldn't be present. They, shouldn't, they clearly should not be the characteristics that characterize an ambassador of Christ. When we think of malice, we might think of the supreme villain of our favorite movie or book, Voldemort, Sauron, Thanos. We think of these that have the ill will towards everyone. When we think of deceit, we might think of some hated politician of the other political party. When we think of hypocrisy, We might think of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. When we think of envy, we might think of Joseph's brothers who hated him and envied him because of how their father favored him. When we think of slander, we might think of how someone has mischaracterized us and damaged our reputation. Often, however, what we don't think of is how these things need to be put away from our own lives. It's always there or in him or her. We may know they don't belong, but often they sneak in stealthily, unannounced and unnoticed. And for this reason, Peter gives the ambassadors of his day and we who are ambassadors of Christ still today this instruction. You must put these things away. In light of the gospel, in light of Christ, you must put these things away. Whether gathered together for worship on a Sunday morning as we are today, or dispersed throughout Tuscaloosa County and beyond as we may be this week, Christians should put away certain things so they are not part of our lives. Such things should not be part of our lives when we are in our classes or at our jobs on sports fields or on social media sites, in our homes or out with our friends, and certainly not when we are interacting and gathering as the body of Christ. Why? Because these are the ways of the old self. These are the ways that we are to have left behind, the ways that lead through the wide gate and down the easy road to destruction. But the way of Christ's ambassadors, the way of the elect exile, it leads through the narrow gate, Jesus tells us, and down the difficult road to life. You see, this gate is too narrow for us to wheel in a big cart of malice with us. This road is too difficult for us to bear the load of deceit and hypocrisy on our shoulders. The upward ascent is too steep for us to drag along envy and slander on our climb. 
such things are both unnecessary and harmful to us and to others. But most of all, these things are acts of rebellion against the one who has sent us out, against our king. The Lord commands us to leave behind and to put away anything that is out of line with his word and his command. Have you ever met someone who enjoys changing dirty diapers? I would venture to say you haven't, and if that's you, well, we can talk later, and you can explain that to me. As many of you know, I have small children, and we have small children in our home. I'm about to add another one. And um, I can assure you, from my perspective, there is absolutely nothing enjoyable about changing a dirty diaper. I don't like smells like that. If there's an enjoyable part of it, it is disposing of the foul thing into the dumpster outside, never to be hopefully smelled or seen again. Why then would we ever consider doing something like just leaving it out in the house? Stink everything up. Sometimes they do that anyway, even if you get them out as quick as you can. They linger for a little bit. See where I'm going with this? See, the same is true for these things that Peter's talking about. They have to be put away, disposed of from our lives. Like dirty diapers, opportunities for deceit and hypocrisy and envy and these things will keep popping up. They're gonna keep coming around. And each time we must take the joy of disposing of them, getting them out of our lives. If we fail to remove them from our lives, they stink everything up. They gross others out. And we can even grow accustomed to their stench so that we no longer notice it. Continually we are to be leaving them behind. We must be diligent to put them away to put away the sin in our lives and leave it behind as ambassadors of Christ because such things do not and must not represent our king. But secondly, that being our first distinguishing mark, we must also not linger here. We don't want to linger in the stench. We want to move on to what is sweet smelling. As we remove things from our lives, the things that are bad, and leave it behind, we must also be diligent to fill our lives with what is good and learn to long for more of that. If you look in verse two and three, the second distinguishing mark of ambassadors is what we long for. Verse two says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It would be difficult to come up with a more fitting um, illustration or image here, and so I'm just gonna stick with the one that Peter gives us. Um, Our longing for the pure spiritual milk should be like that of a newborn infant's longing for literal, actual milk, both in intensity of that longing and in its exclusivity. But first, we should define something, right? What is this Pure spiritual milk. What are we to long for with such intensity and long for exclusively? Well, our first clue is in the word pure. See, James writes that our prayers can be wrong-headed. 
Jesus indicates in John 4 that our worship can be lacking spirit and truth. Paul even says that teaching, as he tells Timothy, can be corrupted by heresy. But Peter says in these verses that precede our text today, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Our best efforts are still tainted with the sinful nature of our flesh. But we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23 tells us. The pure spiritual milk Peter is referring to is the eternal and pure word of God, uncorrupted, unstained, and sustained by the very one who breathed it out through the pens of its human authors. But what does it look like then for us to long for this pure spiritual milk, to long for God's word? Charles Spurgeon said of the Bible, they like it least who know it least, and they love it most who read it most. They find it newest who have known it longest, and they find the pasture to be richest whose souls have been the longest fed upon it. When a newborn's hungry, he or she will let you know about it. No questions asked. No, no, there's, there's no mistaking it. The cry of that hungry baby is loud enough to wake sleep-deprived parents from their slumber, and it is intense enough to demand immediate attention. Peter's point here is not the same of Paul's when he scolds the Corinthians for not yet being ready for more deep, theological, solid food because they are still drinking from spiritual bottles. It's not his point here. Paul's point that the Corinthians were not ready to move on, to grow up into their salvation as they ought to be. But Peter's point here, by contrast, is that the word of God is something to be earnestly desired, something to be always be desired by believers in the same way that this newborn would hunger for milk. Just as that newborn, he or she cannot be content until that longing is satisfied, so too should our spirits within us refuse to be quieted until we have feasted upon the pure word of God each and every day. But not only should this longing be intense and continual to bring us back to it, it should be also exclusive. See, a newborn has no concept of nourishment aside from the milk that he or she drinks. They know no other source to be satisfied. And the ambassador of Christ cannot fulfill his or her charge without knowing the word of our king. It alone is what gives us our marching orders as ambassadors. It is the one that tells us how diplomatic relations should go. In the Garden of Eden, there's a time when our first parents, Adam and Eve, fully understood what it meant for their souls to be nourished by the word of God alone. It was the only source of revelation to them. 
And they had, all they had ever known was the good that came directly from the mouth of the Lord. But when enticed by the offer to be wise like God, to take off the garments of ambassador and put on those of king and queen, to know good and evil. When this happened, they came to experience the futility of trying to spiritually nourish themselves apart from God. Eating the fruit of the tree was merely an expression of the treachery that was in their hearts. They had defied their king's orders. And ever since, humanity has sought nourishment from what cannot satisfy. Yet those who have been truly born again through the living and abiding word of God, we have tasted that the Lord and he alone is good, that he is the only one who satisfies Tasting that the Lord is good changes the appetites of our souls to once again find nourishment from God and his word, which is the good news of Christ, so that we might grow up into salvation. This brings us then to the third distinguishing mark of ambassadors. If we look to verse four, we see who we look to. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is the distinguishing mark upon which everything else hinges. Peter understood this when Jesus asked his disciples in John 6, if they too would go away as the crowds had, hearing the hard teaching that he had to bring to them. Peter's response, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the alpha and the omega and everything in between. By him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and he is the the focus of all New Testament preaching. He is the infinite who became an infant. He is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world and the Lion of Judah who has overcome the world. He is slayer of sin, the defeater of death, the king of the cosmos, and the Lord of life. In him was life, John 1.14 tells us, and that life was the light of men. He was given up by the Father so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. He is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in him shall never die. He came that we may have life and have it abundantly. He is the living bread that came down from heaven and the one who gives living water. He is the true vine in whom all the living branches abide and they bear fruit. And he is the true temple torn down and raised again in three days. He is all this and still more. Beyond what words can describe, beyond what all the books of the world could contain. 
And yet, men and women still reject him. The living stone. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. John 1.11 tells us, but thanks be to God for the next verse, but to all who did receive him. Indeed, Peter would say here, to all who come to him, he gives the right to become children of God, ambassadors of the true king. And by virtue of being the firstborn son of God, Jesus, the living stone, makes God's children to look like him, bringing us to the fourth distinguishing mark of ambassadors, what we look like. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship of Yahweh, and it was the center of all life for the Jews. But it was not made of living stones. Indeed, it was very much made of dead stones. Stones so dead that Jesus foretold that the temple would be so thoroughly destroyed that not one of those stones would be left upon another in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. This came true in 70 AD at the hand of the Romans. But why? Why would Jesus say this temple would be destroyed? Because the greater temple had come. The living cornerstone had been laid. And God was now building for himself a new place of worship. Not one of dead stones, but one of living stones. Not one of geographical prominence sitting on the high hill of Zion, but one of cardiological permanence taking root in the hearts of believers. No longer would worshiping the true God be done in a single chosen location, but in every single chosen life. The old temple was no longer needed for worshiping the Lord because the Lord had sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer purchased with the blood of Christ. But not only are believers the new place of worship, but in Christ we are also the new priesthood that performs worship to the one true God. The priests in the old temple would offer up these animal sacrifices endlessly. If you read the numbers of what Solomon and David and some of the kings would offer up in just a matter of a week's time, the numbers are mind-blowing. But Hebrews tells us they could never atone for sin. They could never take away sin. And after Christ's death, the final sacrifice to which all of these others pointed, believers have been set apart to be now a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But what are spiritual sacrifices? Animal sacrifices are easy enough to define, but what are spiritual sacrifices? Much like the way that every place has become a worship site in the bodies of those who have been born again, so now every action, 
Every word, every thought is a spiritual sacrifice of worship to God. This should drastically impact the way that we view our lives as ambassadors of Christ. Every moment is indeed holy. Corporate Sunday worship and small groups, personal Bible reading and prayer times certainly qualify as these spiritual sacrifices. But just as much going to work, going to class, changing smelly diapers, playing an instrument, eating dinner with family and friends. Every moment, every action, every word, every thought, holy to the Lord. Every single aspect of the born-again life is to be an act of worship to God, an act of representation of our King. This should open our eyes to the grandeur of the Christian life, that every millisecond has the capacity for glorifying the King of the universe. What an honor. What a privilege. What a joy. As we leave behind sinful desires and behaviors and long for the pure spiritual milk of God's word, looking to Christ who is our life, we grow up into salvation, which means we grow more and more to look like Christ our King. This truth should be an overwhelming reason for us to rejoice. However, it will also be perhaps the greatest reason that we will experience suffering and rejection in this world. As we come to Jesus and grow to be more and more like him through the work of his spirit, we will also receive more and more of the same treatment from the world that he did. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Why would we expect to be celebrated in the world that rejected Christ? Doesn't mean we go looking for rejection or calls for confrontation, but why would we anticipate to just fit in? Spurgeon said elsewhere, far be it from us to seek a crown of honor where our Lord found only a crown of thorns. Peter was there in the upper room the night that Jesus was arrested and heard these words directly from our Lord's mouth. Recorded in John 13, verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This is why Jesus told his disciples to count the cost of following him. But is gaining the, this world worth forfeiting our soul? The Bible's answer from cover to cover is an emphatic no. It's not worth it. How can this be? Verse 4 tells us that though Christ was rejected by men in the sight of God, he is chosen 
and precious. And verse six says that the same chosenness, the same preciousness applies to us, his ambassadors. And our fifth and final distinguishing mark is revealed in this, what we lose. Verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter is quoting here Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And in the context, um, Isaiah, guided by the Lord's prophecy given to him, is speaking of the coming of the Messiah. One who the religious leaders should have been the first to recognize, and yet they were the first to reject. So why does Peter quote this to Christians to whom he was writing at the time? I'm glad you ask. Because while it is important that they know that if Christ was rejected, they will also be rejected, it is far more important that they be reminded that in Christ, we too are chosen and precious in God's sight. And the same is still so gloriously true today as it was when Peter wrote to those exiles. No rejection or persecution, or evil, or shame that we experience for the sake of our king will have any hold on us in eternity. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 10 and 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, when Jesus commands our destiny, what do we really have to lose? the only thing that is truly ours that we could lose is our sin. And on the cross, Jesus took that away. We now belong to him. Anything that we give up in this life, walking away from a job that demands godlessness from you, the salary, the promotions that you give up will never be missed. Staying up a little bit later to study rather than missing out on gathering with God's people will be honored by your Lord. What faithful ambassadors of Christ lose is truly nothing worth having. We lose nothing that is worth holding on to. Therefore, we can say with the Apostle Paul, that whatever gain we had, we count as loss for the sake of Christ. For Peter was there also and heard the words of Jesus written in Mark eight thirty five, that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Some of you may have watched this past Monday, as the funeral proceedings for Queen Elizabeth II took place. 
She was the longest reigning monarch in Britain's history. Celebrated, her funeral attended by dignitaries and world leaders from across the globe. Hundreds of millions of people watching, remembering, mourning her passing. But if you were paying attention, and I hope you were if you watched this, and if not, I encourage you to go watch it. Because her funeral service seemed to clearly say that there was a greater achievement in her life than that of queen. Of 70 years, queen. See, prior to her death, the queen had selected the scriptures that would be read. She had selected the hymns that would be sung at her funeral. And what these hundreds of millions of people, heads of state and dignitaries, down to the lowest maybe in England's population, what they saw and heard was a gospel tour de force. The scriptures read pointed not to a wise ruler, but to a mighty savior. Not to a beloved queen, but to the king of the rulers of the earth. The final hymn that was sung by the congregation was Charles Wesley's Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. It says in the final verse these words, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I don't presume to put words into this late queen's mouth. But it would seem that Queen Elizabeth II's final message to the world was that she understood that her crowning achievement was not her platinum jubilee celebrated this summer, but it was being an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, too, may it be said of us. If you are not Christ's ambassador yet, You can be today. Come to him, the living stone, chosen and precious in the sight of God. But for my fellow ambassadors, we should all be asking daily, how are my distinguishing marks looking? What things am I leaving behind? Things of the world or things of Christ? What things am I longing for? Things of the world. The things of Christ. Who am I looking to? To the world or to Christ? What am I looking like? And who? The world or Christ? What am I losing? This life or the one yet to come. 
See, coming to Jesus is not a one-time thing, fellow ambassadors. It's an all-time, everyday thing. So come today. Live for him today. Be his ambassador today. And the promise stands. You will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is truer than anything else that we know. That your love for us, it goes beyond the stars and the heavens and the sand on the shores. That, Lord, you have given us the greatest privilege of representing you in this world. God, may we do so with humility and joy and the expectation that, Lord, you are creating us to look more and more like your perfect son, that you are building us up individually and collectively to be the place where your name is lifted high as we await the day when no temple is necessary for you are dwelling with us forever. Father, today, would you convict our hearts as only your word can? Would you draw us as only your spirit can so that, Lord, we may respond rightly to your word to be your ambassadors for your glory? We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.